You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible, talk about it, and uh, record it, put it out on the internet. Uh, so that being said, it, it it feels a little weird to be back in the studio. We've had the last, what, two weeks? It's been two weeks or yeah. three weeks or something. It's been a, a minute um, because... As you know, I as a lot of you know, I work at a school, and we are doing end of year wrap up with performances and graduations and award ceremonies and all kinds of things. Um, <laughs> it's great because my weeks go by very, very quickly, uh, or my work days go by very, very quickly, and I enjoy doing a lot of the stuff. I I actually really enjoy setting up for uh, for events. It's just a lot of fun. So. Um, because it's something a little We're different. People, yeah, it's something a little different than the than the daily routine, which uh, still is is good. I mean, I like working there, uh, but <laughs> it's our it's affected our recording schedule, uh, and so we've been we've managed to stay ahead far enough to keep everything coming out on time as far as uh, the weekly schedule, and uh, but it's just been a bit hectic on my end of things well it's and it's been fun for me because ty has been home a lot uh because of all the rain he does uh construction so when it rains you know you can't move dirt around too well so it's been good for me not to have to try to find a quiet spot and of course this week i moved i'm outside so yay yeah hopefully the wind will stay nice and calm Right now, it's like dead still. So I'm praying that it stays that way because, yeah, I'd prefer to be outside. And the family prefers it because now I'm not interrupting their schedule. So we're just going to pray that it continues this way. But my husband built me this really nice table that allows me to do this. So we got to get you. We got to get you a door on that back room. (laughs) We do. (laughs) It's in the works. It's in the works. We're just having some. mechanical issues with all of our uh carpentry stuff that i won't go into because i know people don't want to hear that but yeah once we get that lined out then i'll have a study and i'm not going to know how to act because i'll have access to all my books and right Mm -hmm. i haven't had that in seven years yeah well it'll be good well and because it has been so long for me since we've talked about this stuff i mean we've talked about it off and on through uh you know throughout the week but not in any formal way we're st- are we starting First Kings? Is that what's happening here? We're starting First Kings. Uh, our last episode, we discussed some of the um, the sources we're going to use, mm-hmm. and so we're just going to hit them real quick again for anyone who's tuning in for the first time. I'm not going to go in real in depth, but uh, you know, uh, like I said last time, it, it new book of the Bible, new sources. Uh, it was really hard to find good commentaries on first and second Kings, because this is not a book. A lot of people study for its theological messaging. Uh, they, they see it as a narrative. They don't understand that, or they think that the theological messages within it are, are not as significant maybe as, you know, Paul's letters or, uh, you know, the gospels or the Psalms even. And so spoiler, they are neglected. <laughs> they really are. And, you know, and I think one of the things that we really need to wrap our minds around as believers is the fact that we are part of a kingdom. Mm-hmm. We have a king. And so this teaches us what a godly kingdom should look like and what a wicked kingdom looks like. And we should be taking these lessons and, you know, applying them to our lives. I mean, God didn't waste ink on something that didn't matter. And so my my selection here is a little bit more limited than uh, normally the newer international commentaries, which I like. They don't even have the King's edition out yet, um, which really frustrated me because I wanted it. Sure. I wanted it bad. Um, then I, so we were using, you know, what we got. And of course, you know, as always, there's going to be additions with uh 
papers and other podcasts that I can mm-hmm. glean information from. I'm a real big fan of Drisha. Uh, they're a Jewish institute in New York that they have all of their lectures online. Uh, so if you want to listen to those, those are fun. They're fun for me. There's a lot of Hebrew in them, so mm-hmm. it might be a little difficult for people to to tune in. But at the same time, the, the perspective uh, of the Jewish commentators, even today, I think that's mm-hmm. something we really can utilize. So you know, don't be afraid of commentary just because it's Jewish. I know a lot of people ha- have said some um, that you know we shouldn't be using them. Just recognize the limitations pick up the meat and spit out the bones. I mean, it, it, you, you can use discernment. You don't have to agree with everything everyone says. I hope you don't agree with everything everyone says. So Right. And and something you, you said, a uh, couple things uh, that I just want to point out there is you, you, you've said that uh, we are in a kingdom. And the, one of the challenges we have in that in the West is a lot of us don't live in monarchies anymore. Uh, and our people have not for many generations. Um, so the idea of a king is, is a little bit foreign. And uh, something else you mentioned was whether or not these writings are as important as what Paul wrote to the early church. And I think the obvious answer is, well, yes, they are. But uh, oftentimes what we overlook in these Old Testament passages and what we, when we want to skip to Paul, um, we wind up with a lot of what might be perceived as nonsense, um, but only because we don't have Paul's Old Testament background, and Paul does preach from an Old Testament background, but he teaches the Messiah in Jesus, um, so or Jesus as the Messiah, and so it's very, uh, I think it's going to be great when we kind of shift gears, uh, and if, however long it takes us to get through Kings. And we actually get into the New Testament and are able to read a lot of it from the Old Testament uh, through that lens as to what what would Paul have understood and what were his the people he was writing to able to understand because a lot uh, quite honestly a lot of the a lot of the things that get debated in the modern church um, were introduced later on. Uh, the concepts, and then they were kind of overlaid, and uh, you know, mm-hmm. to the 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 what Paul was writing, and so um, there's a lot of things that I think we debate that Paul did not have in mind when he was writing. Um, Absolutely, but we, but because a lot of people reading these things, reading through a either a Middle Ages mindset or a uh, you know Reformation mindset. Or through a modern 21st century or 19th, even you know 20th century mindset, because we don't have the Jewish background, we had to put a lot of these teachers kind of put something in the place of of the whole of the scriptures they couldn't understand, (laughs) Uh, and and we wound up with a lot of really wacky theology um, over the years, and so I I would I'm hoping we can kind of dispense with some of our wacky theology and some and even some of the stuffy theology and, and <laughs> I, but I, I think when we study the Old Testament, I mean even if you really look at the Torah, just looking at like the Torah and then going into the these narratives, you're gonna see where God is very active. Mm-hmm. He's very patient. Mm-hmm. We're also gonna see that he's very uh, just. Uh, mm-hmm. we're, but we don't get that picture if we're just relying on somebody using those descriptors of God in the New Testament. Um, we right. actually get a picture of what this looks like. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see uh, what happens. We're also, and we're also going to see God's generous. Uh, we're going to see, <laughs> right? Uh, he, the, we're going to see some ways that He provides for His people, and um, we're. I'm excited because again, a, a lot of these, a lot of these stories I have not visited uh, since I was in Sunday school. Um, right? Not, yeah, we not intentionally. It's just a lot of the places I've been, we haven't been studying these things. So, I, I'm, in, I'm very curious to see where all this goes and to really get into. This is the weird. This is a, there's a lot of weird in the next two books. 
and uh there's I'm ready a for ton it. of weird. There, there's a ton of weird. And, uh, you know, and I love that. So, yeah, we're going to be talking about all these crazy things that are going on. And I, I do want to point out, too, that whenever you talk about Paul and you're talking about his context, up until that um, Emmaus Road, not Emmaus Road, sorry, the, 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 that conversion experience where he gets knocked road to Damascus. Off his, road to Damascus. That's one of those roads. Um, you know, whenever he he has that conversion experience, he meets Jesus on that road. That that's when he becomes Christian. Before that, he is a Torah observant Jew who mm-hmm. was trained in Jude, Jewish ideologies. And so, yes, he he knew Greek poets and philosophers, and he had this in his databank too. Right. But at the same time, his primary um, source that he's going to be drawing from is Torah. It is the prophets. It is those debates and teachings of other rabbis. So we need to factor that in. And that's the reason why we need to understand the stuff, because it is going to give us a better view. So, um, yeah. So that being said, um, we're, we're going to be looking, uh, one of our, our sources is going to be Robert Alter's uh, translation and commentary on the Old Testament. Uh-huh. And I love Alter. I, I, he pays attention. He's very sensitive to the language. And so he's one of my favorite um, writers and translators of the Old Testament, and that's the reason why we're going to use him. Uh, Our primary text is going to be the ESV, as always, because that's something people have. Uh, Now, Robert Alter, um, you need to realize this guy's smart. He's got some major degrees. He's got a great education. Uh, He's a professor uh, at at Berkeley since 1967. He's received multiple honors. Again, he's a Jewish writer. He's a Jewish humanist. So we have to pay attention and factor that into how he processes information. But his scholarship and his honor for the Hebrew text makes him a valuable resource. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, we we need to to use what resources we have. So, Mm. yeah. And something I wanted to to mention, um, you kind of you're a bit away from it now. You mentioned the Damascus Road thing. Um, and this is something I, and I don't remember who I was listening to as it was either N.T. Wright or Matt Halstead, I think when he was talking, when he was his Heiser interviews, but somebody was talking about Paul and the Damascus road experience and what it was either the Damascus road or maybe it was the Emmaus road. It was one of them. Hey, now, now I'm all confused. Yeah. We, we don't know where we are, but, uh, but one of them, they were talking about how the there were, I think it was the Emmaus road. I was talking about the disciples. They were leaving Jerusalem and they met Jesus. And they had their, exper- their spiritual experience as they were leaving, where traditionally all your other Jewish writing is they have their spiritual experience when, they're, when they go to Jerusalem. And I was that's like, interesting. that's very, very interesting. And then you follow that up with what happens in Acts. I mean, it's a very. Uh, powerful transition, and I'm trying to remember but, which scholar I was listening to who, <laughs> who said But that. how are you going to know that? If you don't know the stories of when people go to Jerusalem and you don't see that that pattern, then you're never going to pick up on that. And exactly. so, you know, this is the reason why we're studying all this. So another Jewish source that we're going to use is Art Scroll, as, all, uh, as always. Uh, it was um, edited by Rabbi Nassim Schumann. Um, it, it draws from multiple Jewish sources across the centuries. We have the very old sources, uh, Dead Sea Scroll sources. We also have Middle Age um, commentators like Rashi and the Rabban, uh, Radek, uh, just a ton of sources brought together. If you study uh, the Old Testament and you want to include a Jewish perspective, Art Scrolls are a really great way to do it because it's, it's an anthology. Their their commentaries and anthology of so many different sources. There is some Kabbalah in there, and we've talked about Kabbalah before. You want to be careful with that. That that can get you really off into some crazy stuff. But um, again, discernment. So our third source is the New American Commentary by Paul R. House, and he's got his PhD from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's currently the professor of divinity at at Stanford University. And uh, he has written a number of books, not only on First and Second Kings, but also on the prophets that were in operation at that time. So Isaiah, Daniel, Jeremiah. 
And um, he actually notes in his opening uh, to this commentary that first and second kings are very neglected. And we've already kind of covered that. We also have Alice L. Laffey. Um, she's an associate uh, professor emeritus at the Department of Religious Studies at the College of the Holy Cross. So she's kind of an outside-the-box source for me. Okay. I'm really looking forward to getting into her stuff. I can't say whether I, uh, you know, endorse her or, you know, where I fall on the spectrum with her because I haven't got into her work great, uh, greatly yet. So we, we may either uh, bring it as something to contribute or something to contend with. We'll, we'll see how it goes. But the one of the reasons why I wanted to to include her is because she is a feminist theologian. And even though, I mean— Alarm bells go off in my head when I use that term because that's how we were raised. Um, and, you know, feminism is such a, oh, it's just a loaded term and you never know how people are using the phrase. Yeah. And so. Um, a lot of a lot of baggage on that word. Oh, my goodness. Yes. And there's a lot of women, though, in First and Second Kings. And as. I'm discovering as I go through these these books, uh, we've got so many commentaries from men who kind of treat women's stories as if they're just kind of a little side quest that really doesn't help with a narrative overall. And it's kind of like, oh, look, God was nice. He talked about women. And uh, they, they don't give the women's stories the same weight that they do the men's stories. And a lot of times that's just because women don't have names. Mm-hmm. And so what we want to do is to make sure we're being sensitive to that and paying attention to how women are a valuable piece in the puzzle. They're not just an afterthought. They're, they're not just included in because God was being nice, that they, they are valued. We are valued. We are important. And that God does not um, think less of us than any men. So I'm, I'm looking forward to, um, uh, getting into her work, I I just want to read one quote from her. It says, in the concrete nitty-gritty of the day-to-day lives, in power struggles, in relationships, between and among individuals, and between and among nations, what constitutes loyalty? What behaviors execute justice? What are the demands of being a covenant, what are, of being a covenant relationship, being in a covenant relationship with God? What does it mean to be faithful to that relationship? What risk are we willing to take? How do we pray? Where do we look for the power of God? So this is how, that's her approach to this book. So I'm really curious if this is her approach, you can, that's not heavily weighted towards women, but it does give, I think, a very balanced starting place for Mm -hmm. her, um, for her commentary. And so I'm, I'm really, um, I'm excited about getting into that book of hers. So with all of that being said, we can get to the good stuff now. So (laughs) we're going to start with first Kings. And does it ever start with a weird, it doesn't start with a very flattering passage, does it? (laughs) No, no. And, And this is where we, we also have to remember that probably, and there are commentators who, who argue this judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, all one book. Right. And so the breaks here were pretty much dictated by the standard length of a scroll. And matter of fact, in uh, some traditions, these first two chapters of Kings are actually in the last part of Second Samuel. So it, it starts in a really weird place, but there's also a reason why it starts here and and we've traditionally decided, or not we, I was not part of the process, uh, but Bible uh, editors have decided, hey, we need to make this break here and keep it here because it actually changes the emphasis. And we're getting to look at at Solomon in a different perspective because we do have that break. So sometimes there's, you know, strategic thought put into how we, we break these up. Sometimes the breaks just really don't make a lot of sense. But it does make a very big distinction between David's 
public persona, the, the guy who gives us those two psalms in that last four chapters of Second Samuel, who makes these very pious, very righteous, very holy statements about God and how mm-hmm. God deals with him and deals with Israel. And then we shift into his personal life. And I mean, we can't get much more personal than the opening of First Kings, where we begin literally in David's bedroom, which right. we should kind of, yeah, it should kind of put us on edge immediately because last time we were in David's bedroom, not a shiny moment for him. So um, now part of the problem with with trying to understand how Second Kings first and second Kings relates to first and second Samuel is it's going to, to affect your dating and your uh, theories about authorship, which is part of what we need to cover before we get really into the text. So I guess we aren't getting to the good, good part. We're just in to the good part. Um, so if you um, think, you know who the author is, then it affects your dating. And then that affects how you, you look at first and second Samuel. So you've got all these moving pieces on the board that you've kind of got to get locked into place. And then there's the question if you, if you can uh, lock it into place. But one of the people who is very influential in how we view how the Bible was written and constructed is a guy named Jay Wellhausen. And he is, um, he made it very popular to try to attribute, you're probably most familiar with his works with the Torah, where he wants to do the J source and the P source and the D source. And, mm-hmm. and he wants to give all these different sources and say, okay, this was written by this person or this kind of person. And at this point in time, and this is why they wrote it this way. And it became very fashionable after that to uh, try to apply that same kind of thought to all books of the Bible. So they would say, oh, there's multiple authors for first and second Samuel. There's multiple authors for first and second Kings. Mm-hmm. And so this, this has led to a lot of scholars spending a lot of time trying to figure out who wrote, wrote what, when, and why, instead of looking at the books as a cohesive whole. And so um, in these theories, they they have this idea that maybe there's this prophetic editor who took the initial history that's presented uh, in First and Second Kings, and this person would be operating after the fall, after the exile, the fall of Jerusalem. And then there was a priestly editor who reworked what the prophetic editor did, and that would have been around sometime between 580 to 600 BC. And then some later more law-oriented kind of thinking, um, going into that Pharisee kind of mindset where he did a late edition and kind of presented us with the completed work. Now, the single author theory claims that one author pulled from various sources that he took, you know, probably various oral traditions, maybe some written text. We do know that there are some uh, written sources cited. And he created this cohesive narrative. Now, uh, the main reason that that was rejected is because of contradictions. And y'all know when I talk about contradictions that we, um, I don't see these as an issue. Mm-hmm. I have never seen contradictions as a major problem. So we're going to, uh, find out why it may not be a, a huge, uh, a huge problem. But for instance, and I'm taking this almost completely from Dr. House and I'm going to enjoy the little um, image of Dr. House that I have in my head, which probably does not match him at all because I watch too much TV. But there are at least 12 passages at the phrase until this day that use the phrase until this day or some variation of that phrase. And once it refers to a portion of the temple that was destroyed around 587 BC, so this was going on in the temple until this day, but we know the temple was destroyed after that point in time. And so obviously when that that portion of the book was written, the temple was still standing. It was still being used. But Dr. House points out the author of Kings makes it explicit that he's quoting from the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel, the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah, and the the book of the Acts of Solomon. So the, the author of Kings actually cites these as sources. We still do this today. This is good practice. This is good literary um, usage and, and 
manners and, and exactly what you're supposed to do. So it means not that this was written as far as uh, the final writing was written. Uh, one person wrote this section whenever the temple was standing and then an editor came back and forgot to edit that part. It just means that the original source document that the, the author was drawing from says that the temple was standing until his day. And when you quote from a historical writing, you don't modify what they say in order to fit your view. That that's not that's a misrepresentation of the author. So whenever the whoever put Samuel together as a cohesive narrative actually started pulling from these sources, what he was doing was making quotes with integrity. He he was he wasn't trying to doctor his sources to to align with his worldview. And so you can still have a single author and not all of these editors who went over it over and over and again, but you can still have a single author who takes various sources and writes one book. You don't need three different authors contributing at different times. It's a slight distinction. Mm -hmm. It's it's a very, very slight distinction. But if you pick up a theology book today, what you're going to find, you're going to find one writer who's pulled from all these sources, who cites these sources. And, you know, we still consider that that writer of the book, the person whose name is on the outside to be the author, Mm -hmm. not everyone else. So it's like I said. Very, very slight um, distinction, but it is important because then you start getting into who is the author. Now, the Talmud attributes the Book of Kings to Jeremiah, and a few Christian commentators still believe that Jeremiah may have written it. However, there's a problem because when you read Jeremiah and Lamentations, which we definitely know belong to Jeremiah, that's Mm -hmm. part of his work. There's all sorts of personal references to Jeremiah. There's no attempt to hide who Jeremiah is within those books. Sure. And so, yeah, so, so when you have this uh, kind of stylistic change, you don't think, oh, well, this, is, this has got to be the author, right? You know, it, you, you expect some consistency in the way that they're right. And, you know— the, the people who study the Bible are really, really good at picking up on these kinds of um, changes in style, changes in the way someone phrases something, because they spend so much time going over and over the same passages again and again until it's, it's in their brain, and it becomes almost like breathing to think in the way that that, that writer is thinking. And so um, we're going to see how this this is a strength that is going to to serve us really well in, in the text. Now, the weakness is whenever someone studies this way is they can be very uninformed in other areas. Uh, so, you know, a lot of times you'll come across a lot of uh, we kind of alluded to it. You'll find a lot of guys who are very well versed in Paul. They know his letters. They know how he writes. They know how he thinks. They can follow his reasoning process. They're just good at it. Unfortunately, they haven't really looked at the Old Testament. And so it it can lead to some holes in their knowledge. But this can be overcome. And the reason why this can be overcome is because we can draw on the sources from people that we can trust who are well-versed in other areas of study. So that's what I'm going to be doing a lot of when we get to the Gospels and the New Testament, because that's not my area. And I'm not claiming to be as well-versed in any of these books as the people who write commentaries. Right. So, but this is why uh, you're never going to have a, a... biblical expert who knows it all. Yeah. This is why you should also stay away from commentaries of the entire Bible that are written by one person. Yes. Yes. Uh, And, you know, and if you are going to use them, use them for a quick little, uh, hopefully they point you to something deeper. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe they, yeah. Maybe they got some, uh, some footnotes to somebody who, who actually was a little deeper and, you know, and they may be just trying to get the, uh, get the footnotes or get the, the, the condensed version, cliff but, notes. but yeah, as, as yeah, cliff notes, that's what I was looking for. Yeah. But, it, but for the most part, um, there's, 
there's a few very popular uh bible commentaries that are out there that are written by one person that i'm just like ooh, don't do that <laughs> very few scholars are great in hebrew and greek i i just to to give you a good example i mean that the, they might know like my hebrew's fair to middling um my greek is pretty much trash uh, so, I mean, and that's pretty common for us to have a strength in one language or the other. And there are some who are well-versed in both. Don't get me wrong. I've studied with a few of them. They are incredible. They've got minds that don't work like anybody else's. Okay. Uh, they're the exception, not the rule. So, uh, even that kind of distinction in how people learn and what their strengths are kind of plays into how well they're going to be able to talk about certain parts of the Bible. So. <clears throat> excuse me allergy season in oklahoma mm-hmm. as usual yeah, i've been feeling it today yeah so one of the more um interesting aspects of of kings is that this is a very politically um, minded book and its focus is on the politics and the condition of israel but what you've got to remember Israel's politics and religious condition are so intertwined, you don't get to have one or the other. They both play out together, and they are, excuse us, Hector is being a little fussy today, Um, but you can't have one or the other. You've got to have both together, and um, so whenever we're talking, Hector, when we're talking about the the nation of Israel as a whole, we're going to find that the political situation, uh, and particularly the the attitude of the king, is really going to determine what the religious situation and condition of Israel is. Mm -hmm. And so you've got to have those two together. And because this is a politically minded book, we also have foreign affairs becomes a huge issue. Uh, We begin to see how Israel's history uh, converged with documented history of other nations like Egypt and Babylon and Assyria and Syria. I don't know why I put those together. I should have totally separated them. Um, And just like Samuel, though, we do have some problems with the text. Uh, One of the more troubling ones is uh, the chronology in Kings. It doesn't it doesn't add up. If you take all of the dates and the numbers of the various kings, uh, both of Judah and Israel, they don't fit mm-hmm. uh, with any of the corresponding dates. And so this has caused a lot of people to like, see, this can't be a historical document because otherwise it would just be factually correct and everything would line out and it'd be great. Well, this is a historical document, but it's also a theological document. But the the problem with uh, this kind of approach is it's telling me you don't know history. You don't know how things worked in ancient cultures because it's easily resolved if we look at the way surrounding nations of the same time period when kings would have been written and when the events of kings would have been happening actually date their, their monarchs and the succession of their monarchs because there's more than one way to date when a king begins to rule. Mm-hmm. So you can begin with when they take the throne, you can begin with their birth, you can t- begin with uh, when they are anointed but or when they leave. There, there's a lots of complex system, but um, there's a, a scholar named E.R. Thales. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. And he's got a book, The Mysterious Numbers of the Hebrew Kings. And um, he basically says all of these different systems are not employed with any kind of consistency. And then we have this matter of co-regents. Now, co-regents is, we're going to actually see an example of this very quickly in First Kings. So David is still alive when Solomon takes the throne. So for a short window in there, Israel has overlapping kings reigning over them. Mm-hmm. They're, they're together. And this happens a lot. As the aging king begins to take less and less uh, of an active role in politics, the sun will step up. They'll reign together. So you can have 5, 10, 15 years of kings that, that are reigning at the same time. 
And then Israel and Judah, as the two kingdoms, they both date the system. They use different dating systems for how to determine the length of a reign. And they don't use like Israel uses one and Judah uses one. It's like at some points Israel uses this one and then they decide to use that one. And then they pick up a third one from some random place. Meanwhile, Judah's over here. They've already used the third one, gotten tired of it, went to the second one and might insert the first one occasionally. So it's not going to line up. Yeah, it's just not going to happen. And this is because ancient people were like the rest of it. They were figuring it out as they went along. <laughs> and so we, we need to remember they didn't have this all set in stone. Yeah, the, the, the ancient uh, nation of Israel did not have uh, the King James Bible just sitting around going, when's this going to happen? Right. We need to do this according to the plan. Um. So, you know, even though this has cost scholars and and less scholars and more of armchair theologians and armchair critics of the Bible to think, aha, this is an I gotcha moment. We got we understand all the reasons why you should reject the Bible and let us present it to you. It, it's we figured it out, guys. It, it's I know it's been kept secret from the public, but I can tell you where to find it. The answers in books by people who actually study this and not people who get their information about the Bible from memes. Right. So, uh, or even that history, history channel documentary. Yeah. Well, and the other thing you got to understand about dating at this time is you did not have, you didn't have a calendar that was counting down to one BC. Right. Right. I mean, you, do, you don't have that. <laughs> Um, yeah, different nations have different names for different months. I mean, it, there's all sorts of uh, complications that we just don't deal with today. And we need to realize, you know, people are people. Mm -hmm. If I want to know what day of the week it is or what the, today's date is, I'm going to pick up my phone. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you don't get to do that when you're an ancient Israelite. So um, we also have some discrepancies with the order. Uh, of how things are recorded. Um, and this shows up between the Masoretic and the Septuagint text. Um, this, this has been the fodder for some pretty hate um, that the idea that the, the Masoretes got together in Italy and they edited the Old Testament and they took out anything that referred to the Messiah or Christianity and Okay, you hear somebody talking like that, you automatically know you don't need to listen any further. Um, it, it, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls, okay? We have the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Dead Sea Scrolls, which predate any other, um, well, they, they're about 200 years before Christ. Uh, that's about as far back as we can get. Uh, they predate the Masoretic Text and when the editing process has, and there's a lot of agreement there. As a matter of fact, this is the latest breakdown of the numbers is from Emmanuel Tove. He is the Dead Sea Scroll expert. Heiser has got a video out about the different um, manuscripts out there. He cites these same numbers. Um, it was funny because I actually found this and then Facebook uh, pops up this Heiser video that would have saved me at least 20, 30 minutes of looking. But anyway, it says, uh, Tove is saying that 37% of the Dead Sea biblical manuscripts, not the scrolls, just the biblical stuff, fit into the Masoretic tradition. That's a pretty high percentage. 5% um, fall into the Septuagint tradition. 5% fall into the Samaritan tradition. Oh yeah, there's a Samaritan version of the Bible for people who didn't know. It's out there. You can still get it. You can read it. Um, and then there's uh, the leftovers kind of just fall into this miscellaneous that, that don't really fit with any known tradition, but evidently they were out there. We just don't get to study them. Um, and, and the, the um, Qumran community, they saved all these. They preserved all these because they didn't think one was better than the other. They thought they all needed to be preserved for future generations. So the, what we have in the Masoretic text is not some kind of anti-Christian propaganda compiled by Jewish writers and editors. These are people who actually cared about preserving the text with integrity. And, um, you know, each, 
each version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint and the Masoretic, have something to contribute to our understanding. And so um, I think it's that it's very appropriate that we kind of follow in the tradition of Qumran and, and study both the Masoretic and the Septuagint and try to understand how the two converge, how they illuminate each other, how they help us understand uh, the other text better. And, and recognize that there's strengths and weaknesses in both traditions. And so, you know, in, in the Book of Kings, we can see clear evidence that the Septuagint translates, um, uh, the translators try to iron out some of the difficulties, some mm -hmm. of the problems with the Masoretic text, um, or what would become the Masoretic text. Um, so they they really uh, focus on clearing up any historical or theological problems. Uh, it doesn't mean that we should disregard the Septuagint because the the Masoretic's far from perfect. Um, we really need the Mas the Septuagint to make sense of some of the Masoretic's more um, chaotic passages, and so we we need both of them. We, we need them for comparison and uh, contrasting both of them. So something to keep in mind as we're moving forward. Uh, this is a theological and a historical document simultaneously. They're both together. And theology ch shapes history in Israel, and history is the product of theology. So um, Devise actually noted that uh, Israel is the only nation that find themselves in historical rather than mythological language, which I think that's beautiful. So the, the theology of Israel is the outgrowth of their historical experience. And so we, we see this very clearly when we talk about Passover, which wasn't that long ago, when uh, you know, the, the theology of this nation of rebirth, this, of a nation that's been delivered, that's been set free, is the product of the events that happened during Passover, the historical events. And when God actually very directly intervenes with human affairs. And so the, this is a history that highlights and reinforces those theological themes and that were um, experienced within the history. So don't don't think that you can discount the theology or that you can neglect the history. You've got to have both of them together and you've got to pull those together because that's what the writer is presenting to you. He's not giving you an either or he's giving you a both and. Mm -hmm. And so we, when we, we talk about Judaism and, and old Testament or Hebrew theology being a product of history, what we're also saying is our faith is based in history. Our faith is based on the historical reality of Jesus actually being human, of walking this earth, of actually dying a human death and raising again, rising again in human form. So we we don't discount the history, mm. but we we absolutely celebrate the theology. We've got to have both of those things together. So this shouldn't be a hard concept, but I find that people do have a difficulty of it with it. So Arbanel, uh, we've referenced him before. He, he's one of the rabbis who did a commentary on the Old Testament. He claims that Kings is not meant to be a history book at all, but rather a theology book. And uh, he supports this claim by pointing to the fact that the author of Kings points his readers to other history books for the historical accounts. And while I disagree with that conclusion, as I've just spent so much time explaining why I thought the opposite, um, I, I think that I can understand what he's driving at, that you shouldn't miss the theology for the history. And so what the, uh, he's also telling us that the author of Kings, what he's doing is giving us those historical events that actually further our, our theolo theological understanding and deepen our theological, um, insight. So, um, in the Hebrew scriptures, I think something to note is that Judges through Second Kings is not included in the historical or what we call the writings uh, part of the, the Tanakh, the Old Testament. It is actually put with the prophets. So this is one of the reasons why um, it was said that Kings is a theolog theological book and not a historical book, because it is with that in that section of writing. But 
there's more to it. We also need to realize that Kings is a history of the prophets. Mm-hmm. And so we have a lot of stories about the prophetic interactions within the royal courts. Um, we we see how the prophets are very central to a lot of the narratives. They're going to play major roles in the shaping of Israel's history. So it's included in the prophetic books of the Tanakh so that we can actually see how instrumental and influential the prophets were. Now, House says... Uh, I thought this summed it up well. He says the prophetic movement incorporated these components in order to make sense of history. Prophets preached the word and wrote the word. Prophets predict the future and explain the past. Prophets anointed kings and denounced kings. The very existence of the Old Testaments, long after the prophets had died, people came to agree with the uh, interpretations of Israel's actions and accepted their writings as the word of God. So, He's affirming, yes, the prophets are the one who shaped history. And I would actually push this further. <coughs> Excuse me. I would say that the prophets became participants in creating the history of Israel. Because when we look at the prophets, when they speak Hadavar, the word, the creative word of God, they are actually making this new future possible. And if you notice what they say, if you do this, if you honor and obey God, then I'm going to create this future where there's blessing and provision and God's protection. You don't obey. Then there's going to be, you know, judgment and wrath and punishment for your disobedience. And so the the belief is, and this has been a part of the Jewish mindset forever, that that reality, those possibilities, specifically uh, the ones that the prophet's kind of pinpoint, you know, you know, Egypt's going to invade or Babylon's going to invade, that those realities did not become possible until the prophets participated with the with God to speak that word, which speaking the word is how you create new things. We see that in Genesis 1. So the prophets presented the possibilities, they create the possibility for new realities. The kings enact or um actually solidify which reality is going to happen through their uh, through their responses to the prophetic warnings. And we're going to see that over and over again in the book of Kings. And the other thing I found really interesting that House points out is that um, Kings is really the end of a lot of things. This is where a lot of stuff just stops. Uh, Israel's natural history ends. Um, you know, this is the history that began in Genesis and with the garden and really uh, stepped up with uh, Abraham. But the end here encompasses so much. There's the loss of the geographic space, the land of Israel specifically to other nations, the temple destroyed. So we, we've got no more sacrifices. Mm-hmm. The feast where people travel to the temple, that ends. Um the priests are without a job. They're, they're gone. The monarchy that we have just gone through so much struggle and drama to see how it was created. It ends. The only part of the Jewish um, religion that remains intact after the, the fall of Israel and the exile is the prophetic voice. The prophetic voice is the only thing that continues and actually manages to hold the people together as a collective nationality uh, of having this identity within the exile that allows them to be able to return. The prophetic voice gives that, that reminder that God is still in control, God still is shaping history, and that they need to hang on to who God has said they are, but also who God has revealed to them, he he is Mm -hmm. as their God, that he is the one that's going to protect and provide for them. And, um, you know, the the fact that the prophets are the ones that remained intact is really kind of interesting to me because I think there's going to be some some bleed over that we're going to be able to follow very nicely into the um, the, the New Testament. And so we find within the book of Kings that not only are prophets kind of, you know, these, these voices of doom and the imminent demise of the nation that, but they're also the voice of hope. They're the voice that says, Hey, you, you, you've got to hang in there. And, um, 
the, the other thing that prophets do is they actually create a way for uh, the covenant that God established with um, Israel to be honored, even though there isn't a temple and there isn't a sacrificial system. They're helping Israel re reinterpret what they believe in a way that can still um, be a very vibrant and life-giving uh, element within their lives, even as they are in these foreign nation. And so um, House identifies the prophets as one of the primary uh, groups, character groups within Israel. Of course, the main figure within the Book of Kings is God. But then we also have the kings who are judged according to the standard. You're going to hear that they're either like David or they're like Jeroboam, that these are the two uh, the two ends of our spectrum of how uh, a king is. Is he good or is he evil? If he's good, he's like David. If he's not, then he's like Jeroboam. Uh, prophets are our second major group. We've covered why they're so important. The third major group is the Israelites themselves, the people of the nation, whether they're faithful or unfaithful. Mm -hmm. But then the fourth group is the foreigners, because we're going to see a lot of foreign activity, and we're, they're also going to be divided as the faithful and the unfaithful. And so as we're going into Kings, there, there's a lot of things to hang on to because we don't want to forget all the stuff we just covered in Judges and First and Second Samuel, because that's still at play. Mm -hmm. And so, but um, I guess we we got ten minutes. We're gonna just I'm gonna read the first verse, and we're gonna talk just a few minutes um, about this. It says, "Now King David was old, advanced in years." And all and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. So, um, what do we know about David at this point? We know he's old. Mm -hmm. um, specifically, we know he's seventy years old, which actually, in the grand scheme of things, not very old according to biblical standards. Uh, we know this because in Second Samuel five four, it tells us David became king at at thirty, the age of thirty, and then we know that he reigned uh, at till for 40 years, and I forgot to write down the reference for that. Um, so, you know, it, it, this is 70, easy math. I can handle these kinds of numbers. Now, uh, David, the Talmud claims that David's inability to stay warm was divine punishment. And this is what I thought was an interesting story, uh, how much truth there is, I'm not certain. But it says because he cut the corner from uh, Saul's robe and that this is God's kind of retribution for the fact that David stole the warmth that the garment offered to Saul. And, you know, it's probably a stretch, um, but this is one answer of why David's in such bad shape that the rabbis came up with uh, at such a relatively young age. Because if you look at other biblical um, heroes, I mean, they're living... Noah was 350 years, Abraham was 175, Jacob 130, Moses 120, uh, Joshua 110. So, I mean, David's in pretty rough shape for a biblical hero. Mm -hmm. um, others have suggested that basically because David spent so many years on the run, you know, he, he's always been involved in brutal warfare. He lived most of his life outside. He didn't really have much protection from the element during those uh, early years that he, he just wore out basically mm -hmm. is what the, they're saying, which I mean, that, that does make a certain amount of sense. Erratic. Um, so that was radic. Sorry. The Midrash says that uh, when David saw the angel coming down over Jerusalem after the census, that all the warmth fled from his body and he never could regain it. Um, and so, you know, it's it's an interesting idea that we can look at the, these possible causes. And I think most for a long time uh, listeners know that I like to pick up on these different ideas just to kind of see how do various people read the Read, read these passages. How do they explain these passages? And, you know, looking at the, the strengths and the weaknesses of each one, because I don't think there's a lot of support for any of these ideas, other than the fact David is just an older man. He, he's, um, he has lived a hard life. I think we can support that from the scriptures. And I think we need to be very careful in reading anything more into it. Um, 
so but this this allows us to get a setup for something very interesting where the idea that David's old and cold is only slightly interesting, but it provides us with a setup for uh, a retelling and a um, reversal that we wouldn't have if we didn't perceive David this way. But mm -hmm. we're going to have to come back to that after we get some more pieces on the board because like most of our stories, there's a lot of stuff packed into this. So verse two says, therefore his servant says, let a young woman be sought for my Lord, the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms that the Lord, my king, may be warm. Now, most uh, translations um, trans uh, have, let us find a virgin rather than young woman. The word there is betula. Um, and while that word does encompass a virgin, it can apply to any young woman who is of marriageable age. Most of the time, context is going to dictate whether you're talking about a young woman or you're talking about a maid or you're talking about a virgin. Um, this is, by the way, a different word than what we have in Isaiah for, you know, a virgin will conceive. You know, that, that's a totally different word. We aren't going to go there just yet. And when we consider that, David is that David's servants are looking for a young woman to share the king's bed. Uh, it's probably appropriate that they were looking for a virgin, that that's this is what they were trying to find for the king. Um, another point to consider that in societies without central heat and air, body heat is one of the most effective ways of staying warm. So this isn't like crazy out there. Oh my God, what are they doing? This is actually kind of normal in, in many respects for that time period. The, the weird part here is that they're looking for, gosh, they're looking for somebody and not just appealing to one of his wives to, to take the job over mm -hmm. because we know he's got several wives. Um, yeah. You know, have plenty of people on the roster there. <laughs> right. So you would, yeah, you would kind of think that he would, um, he, they wouldn't have to go casting about looking for somebody. And this would be kind of, um, depending on which family she was from, this could really be seen as an honor for her to be, to be chosen. She probably came from a well-known family, a, a, a prestigious family. She, she, um, but at the same time, she probably wasn't asked about her her preference in the situation. It would have been something that um, would have been prestigious for her family. Sorry, Hector's moving the computer. Um, so they they find this woman and she they bring her in. Verse three it says so they saw for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel. And they found Abishag, the Shunammite, and they brought her to the king. So the language here, if you're paying close attention, uh, mirrors 1 Samuel 16, 16. Let our Lord now command your servants before you to seek out a man who is skilled in the playing of a lyre, or seek out. It, it's the same words that were spoken when Saul was being troubled by the evil spirit. And so we have this, this um, connection there between kings who have issues, whether it's a physical issue, a spiritual issue, the servant's jobs are to go and seek out the solution. This is, this is what they're supposed to do in order to make everything work out all right within the royal courts. And we, again, have that, that, moment where David mirrors Saul in a way, and it's not necessarily in a good or bad way. We're just seeing the fact that kings, human kings, have shared traits at this point. So, um, you know, bo both times the servants are sent out to, to get the solution. David's his perpetual chill, Saul's the evil spirit. And um, we do have, the, like I said, that mirroring. And we really see how smart the writer of First and Second Kings is uh, with these opening lines because he sets up the following event uh, with just a few verses. He doesn't have to waste a lot of ink in order to make his point mm -hmm. because he wants us to think back to Saul. He wants us to think back even further. We're going to find he makes connections uh, from Genesis to his time. Um, 
you know, the fact that, that, um, Abishag is, um, identified as a Nara, which is, uh, we talked about Nars before. Nars are young men, the princes, the, the, mm. uh, okay. This is the feminine version of that. So when the servants of Saul say, let us seek out a young man, they're saying, let us seek out a young woman. It's the same words as close as you can get it in, in the Hebrew. Mm. And yeah, it's, and there's both to be brought to the courts. So, um, I think with that little bit of a cliffhanger to see how this is going to play off as Saul's story and to figure out how we're going to, uh, you know, what comparison should we make of David and Saul and David and other biblical figures and, and to see how the writer really sets that up. We'll probably just uh, wait until our next episode because uh, we're getting ready to get into some intrigue, some political intrigue, and we want mm-hmm. to be sure all of it uh, is very cohesive mm-hmm. and, um, uh, yeah, this I, I worked probably the whole time we weren't recording, just writing notes on this. And uh, it took me forever to get to this first chapter because there's so many allusions to different parts of the Bible. Sure. And I haven't even started chapter two. So that's how much information is here. Awesome. Well, that sounds interesting. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Like I said, this is there's a lot of weird in the in first and second Kings. And we're going to we're going to dive right into it. And if you want to join us. Everyone out there, yeah, be a part of the conversation at RavenCreekSC.com or RavenCreekSC on all the social media, and we'll be glad to see you there. And until next time, we will see you next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.